Good morning, Father. Thank you uh, for the honor to bring your word this morning. I ask you that you would, by your Holy Spirit, do a special work on our hearts and on our minds to worship you more as you deserve. So please, um, may this be more than just words, Lord, before you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the cross. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So lean up to chapter 10, the walls have been finished, and Ezra makes his first appearance in chapter 8. Ezra reads the law of God, clearly explains what he read, so that the people understood. Nehemiah 8, verse 8. The people wept, but the Levites calmed the people and told them, this day is holy, do not be grieved. They found written in the law that God commanded them to dwell in booths. So they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, which was to remind them of the huts that the Israelites lived in while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Just as God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery, God again delivers his people out of Babylon from exile. In a way, it was a gospel type of moment they were celebrating. After celebrating and obeying the law of God, the people had great joy. In chapter 9, the people continued to read from the book of the law, but rather than celebrate a feast, they were confessing their sins. Nehemiah 9.3 As a result of fasting and reading the word, the chapter is a prayer of God's goodness displayed in what I call gospel moments in the Old Testament. And so chapter 9 lays out over and over God's redemptive history. Starting with creation, covenant with Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, giving of the law, manna in the wilderness, taking possession of the promised land, warning from the prophets, and finally the Babylonian exile. Do you see the gospel in each of these major points in Israel's history? This is often referred to as, the, as redemptive history, thus the gospel is evident as God is making a people for himself. From this list, the Exodus is the most defining and prominent gospel moment in the entire Old Testament. This is supported by the fact that Old Testament authors mention the Exodus over and over as the main example for God's rescue and deliverance of his people. Here's a brief order of events from chapter 8 through 10. So in chapter 8, they read the book of the law, which led to weeping, then celebrating, <laughs> then rejoicing. In chapter 9, they read the book of the law, which led to more weeping, <laughs> then fasting, then praying, then confessing, and then covenanting. And in chapter 10, in our chapter, they seal the covenant, and which led to pledging or promising to God. So out of their confession in chapter 9, they wanted to make a covenant with God. Nehemiah 9.38 they realize that they and their ancestors have sinned against God. They want to not just confess with their mouths, but also make a written agreement that they would obey him. So a key topic in our passage this morning is covenant. No, I didn't say key word because the word covenant is not found in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. One Bible scholar has said that the Bible's single theme 
is in this phrase. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, which is covenantal language. Because this is an important word in the entire Bible, we should spend a few moments discussing this topic before jumping into Nehemiah 10, a chapter about the Israelites entering into a covenant with their God. So let's define the word covenant. A covenant at its core is an agreement between two parties. In his book on covenants, Paul Williamson defines a covenant as, quote, a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties sealed with an oath. I'll repeat that. A covenant is a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties sealed with an oath. See, the commitment is solemn because it can be, in certain covenants, a situation of, of life or death. Life, if you keep the covenant, or death, if you break the covenant. In Nehemiah 10, 29, we find this phrase. They'd entered into a curse and an oath, which is another way of defining the word covenant. Another clue we see in this verse is a covenant is not only sealed with an oath, but it contains a curse or a penalty if broken. There are several different types of covenants found in the Bible. First are covenants initiated by, by people with other people. We'll find this in Genesis 21, verse 27. Genesis 21, verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Now we also see a second type of covenant in the Bible, which, is, which are covenants initiated by God to people. And we'll go to chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And the third type of covenant we find in the Bible are covenants that people initiate with God. We find that in Nehemiah chapter 10. But when we think of covenants, we typically think of the major five covenants of the Bible, ones in which God initiates with man. So here's a little uh, Old Testament or Bible pop quiz. Which is the first of the five major covenants found in the Bible? It's the covenant that God made with Noah. Adam is an optional one. That's like an optional sixth covenant. <laughs> so the first one is the one that God made with Noah. Second yeah, Abraham, the covenant God made with Abraham. Third, the covenant that God made with Moses. Fourth, the covenant God made with David. Yeah. And the last one, the covenant God made with Jesus, the new covenant. Now going back to Nehemiah 10, in the first section, verses 1 through 27, it lists the leadership groups who have signed the covenant. And to remind you, a covenant that the people made with God. You may notice several of the names were listed in chapter 3, 
which lets the reader know that these leaders were also involved in the rebuilding project. Some of the names listed are names of families, and other times are names of individuals. It is fitting that the leaders are the ones who pledge and vow first before God in writing. They are the ones most accountable. Now, the second section of chapter 10, in verses 28 through 39, lays out the details of the covenant, what they are promising before God. Now, even though the leaders sealed the covenant, the community of of Israelites also followed their lead and made their pledge, their vow, their promise with God, which we read in verse 29, quote, join with their brothers, their nobles. In verse 28, it goes on to list several subgroups, including priests, singers, and servants, and we find this phrase, all who have knowledge and understanding, which means that even children were entering into this covenant. All those youth and young people who understood what they're covenanting to do before God. So everyone in the community was involved. Did you notice the phrase in the middle of verse 28? It says, All who have separated themselves from the peoples to other lands to the law of God. Now, some commentators think that this is in reference to the Israelites who were not exiled to Babylon but stayed behind in Judah and were not influenced by pagan nations around them. Notice that the people did two things. First, separate from the peoples and then go to the law of God. When it comes to battling sin or even ungodly influences, it's not enough just to withdraw or even keep apart or not associate with one thing We must also pursue what is good and godly. If we only withdraw, you will create a void that will likely be filled with another thing that's not beneficial. For example, as a caring parent, you tell your son, you need to withdraw and separate from those skaters at school, the ones you hang out with. Now, I'm not against skaters. This is an example. I wear skater shoes myself, so they're not a good influence on you. And let's say your son falls through and stops spending time with them. Now, he doesn't have many friends and is a lone ranger. What is he going to do? He's not going to be fond of you, for one, and he's going to spend time with the next subgroup that accepts him, which may not be a group of people you would approve of. What happened there? He separated from what was ungodly, but he didn't pursue what was godly. So he ended up in the same boat, but with different friends. Do you see that we must separate and at the same time pursue what is good? Now, as a side note, I'm not advocating a type of Christian bubble where every single friend that you have has to be a Christian and every mechanic or accountant you use has to be a Christian because how can we fulfill the great commission to spread the gospel to all nations if we avoid interacting with unbelievers? Let's look at another example from marriage. Let's say your spiritual gift is not encouragement, but more than that, your words are at times hurtful to your spouse. Is it sufficient to say that you will not use your words in that way? Imagine the next time you had the thought of saying something slandering to your spouse 
and you hold back. That's a good thing. But now you won't know what to say instead. Now, if you ask Ed Bassard, little or no communication is not beneficial in a marriage. So it wouldn't be better to replace the piercing words with words that uplift your spouse's heart? So I use those two examples to say this. Leaving a void or only separating is not helpful in our pursuit of godliness. We must replace what we are fighting for with something that is... Oh, sorry, let me repeat that. We must replace what we are fighting against with something that is worth fighting for. We must replace what we are fighting against with something that is worth fighting for. Now, we as Christians, this is especially true for Christians in the Reformed tradition, we are really good at emphasizing what we are to separate from, but we need to be clear on what we are for. In his book on religious affections, Jonathan Edwards, considered to be one of the greatest theologians to ever come from the United States, wrote this, describing what Christians are to be about. Quote, The supreme proof of a true conversion is holy affections, zeal for holy things, longings after God, longings after holiness, desires for purity. Did you notice how Jonathan Edwards described genuine conversion as zeal for and longings after the things of God? See, godliness and holiness involves more than just denying yourself what is sinful. It is also about pursuing God. And so I say this because in our covenant with God, we must have a desire to be faithful to him. And that involves obedience. Now, in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, the people entering a covenant with God were people that wanted to separate from the ungodly influences of the people groups around them, but to also pursue the law of God. This was their mindset going into this promise, this pledge, this vow. Let's read verse 29 again because it's one of the key verses in the chapter. Join with their brothers or nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Now the people are promising to walk in God's law, right, and to observe all the commandments that God gave to Moses. So let's spend a few moments talking about the law of Moses, the laws that God gave to his servant Moses, which are found in the first five books of the Old Testament. Did you know that there are over 600 commandments alone in the first five books of the Old Testament? Now, why did God give the Israelites so many laws? Well, first of all, the commandments in the Bible reveal the character of God. Without the laws, we would not know what God is like and what he expects of his people. Secondly, the laws also reveal how to please God. Third, the laws of God are meant to protect his people. I think parents, you understand that. Uh, you know, when you tell your kid no, it's for their protection. Fourth, now all the laws are moral in nature. Some are meant to provide instruction on the ceremonial rituals or the social structures for the nation of Israel. Now, second, stepping back 
a little bit. Here are two key points on the role of the Mosaic Law. And the word mosaic is just an adjective form of the word Moses. So we have Noah, Noahic, Abraham, Abrahamic, David, Davidic. And there's no adjective for Jesus. But. <laughs> all right, so first of all, the law of Moses is meant to point us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. And secondly, the law of Moses was never meant to provide salvation by keeping it. And you can read the book of Romans or Hebrews for that insight. Now, what came first, the Exodus out of Egypt or the Ten Commandments? You can answer. It's okay to respond. Exodus or Ten Commandments? The Exodus. And I think that describes a very important point on the role of the law. God first delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, then he gave them a law to obey. The law didn't come before God saved them. He gave them instructions on how to worship him after he saved them. This is true of us. The law was never meant to provide salvation, but to give a rescued people guidelines on how to worship the Savior. The Old Testament laws were never the method of salvation back in the day. It was to show them that the repetition of the rituals could never truly take away guilt and a rebellious heart. Only God can do that. In Nehemiah 10, we find that not only did the Israelites pledge to obey the whole law of Moses, they also pledged specific things in the following verses, verses 30 through 39. First of all, they specifically pledged, first, not to intermarry with the pagan nations around them, verse 30. Secondly, not to buy from the pagan neighbors on the Sabbath, verse 31. Third, observe the sabbatical year or the seventh year in verse 31. And fourth, to take care of the temple, which is done in three specific ways. First, giving financially to the ministry of the temple, verse 32. Bringing wood for the offering, verse 34. And finally, supporting the priests with their first fruits and tithes, verse 35 through 39. Now, these specific laws reveal to the surrounding nations that the people of Israel are distinct and that their God is over every aspect of their lives, their relationships, their possessions, and their time. It also emphasizes the importance of the temple in their daily lives. Now, to be clear, although the Old Testament does mention intermarriage, giving, and supporting the ministry of the gospel, the focus of this sermon is not to... Uh, show how we should obey these precepts as well. Now, why do the Israelites pledge these specific laws before God? There are two probable reasons. First, to be specific about their pledge, right? I promise to obey you in, in this specific way, Lord. And secondly, to give emphasis to areas that have been areas of sin. So I promise you to obey you in ways that I have struggled before, Lord. Now, it's a good thing to want to obey God and to be specific in your desires to please him. And I think this also applies to prayer. How do you know when God answers your prayer when your requests to him are vague? Be specific. Now, you might be wondering, how long did the Israelites keep this covenant, this big promise to obey all the laws of Moses? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
It only took him three chapters to fall. So we find in chapter 13, the Israelites break the covenant they made with God. And I'll demonstrate four different ways in chapter 13 where they messed up. So first, they promised to, quote, give portions to the Levites. Nehemiah 10.37. What happened? Quote, the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Nehemiah 13, verse 10. So they messed up on the first fruits and their tithes. Secondly, they promised, we will not neglect the house of our God. Nehemiah 10, 39. What happened? Nehemiah said, quote, why is the house of God forsaken? Nehemiah 13, verse 10. So they messed up on the temple. Third scenario, what did they promise? And if the peoples of the land bring in goods of any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Chapter 10, verse 31. What happened? It says, Tyrians also who live in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah, even Jerusalem itself. Exclamation point in the word of God. Nehemiah 13, 16. And Nehemiah responds, he says to the rebellion, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah 13, 17 and 18. You see, Nehemiah is furious. And then Nehemiah gives orders to keep the Sabbath holy and leads the Israelites to restore order. He prays to God, remember this also in my favor. Oh my God, spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love, which is the Hebrew word hesed, is the covenantal loyal love. Nehemiah 13, 22. And we know that if God gave us justice, we would only receive wrath. So we likewise ask him for mercy. So they messed up on the Sabbath. Fourth scenario. They promised to, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Chapter 10, verse 30. What happened? In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amon, and Moab. Nehemiah 13, verse 23. And Nehemiah really responds to this one. Uh, he drops the hammer. I'll, I'll leave the preacher verse for chapter 13 to explain what that meant. But he drops the hammer on the Israelites and he prays, Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So all that, all that to say, the Israelites did not keep their pledge before God, not even close. But we shouldn't point the finger and say, those hypocrites, we sin just as much as they did. In addition, we know the gospel, we know the grace of the Lord Jesus, for which angels long to look, 1 Peter 1.12. How much more grievous does that make our sin? Let's be honest, if you had been a Christian for any amount of time, 
you will have a desire for holiness and godliness and yet not live up to your own desires, Romans 7. This is where repentance comes in. And here are a few questions to consider. First, is repentance something you did when God saved you? Or is repentance a habit in your Christian life now? In other words, as a Christian, do you wrestle and fight against the sin that's still evident within you? Do you ever get desperate in your struggle with sin to point that you cry out to God to deliver you? Does your sin grieve you at all, or is it so common it doesn't convict you as much as you know it should? Is your Christian life only about fighting against sin, or do you worship Christ more than you fight your sin? And I would add to that that we should worship out of our sin. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane, who we have the reading plan through, had this to say about sanctification. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. The Christian life is ultimately about Christ and not about a better me or a better you. So the application here is not to say, go make a promise before God and do better. The point of the sermon is twofold. First, this chapter explains how the Israelites responded to their brokenness and repentance in chapter 9 by pledging their obedience to God even though they fell short. And secondly, this chapter helps us appreciate how amazing it is when God initiates a covenant with us and keeps it, as Victor explained so beautifully earlier. Now, as Israelites were under the Mosaic Covenant, Christians are under a covenant initiated by God, the New Covenant. Did you know that the New Covenant is foretold in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's go there. Jeremiah 31. So rather than saying go obey the precepts of this chapter, it's, it's more applicable for us to talk about the new covenant. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Easy to remember. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with, the, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See the the theme of the Bible right there. Verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So in this passage, a new covenant, God is promising to do first, to put his law within them, written on their hearts. See, with the Mosaic Covenant, 
the law was external to them. Now it's internal in one form. Secondly, God promises to forgive their sin. In the Mosaic Covenant, obedience to the law cannot and would ever, can never take away their guilt. And third, God promises to be with his people in it. And this means in an intimate way. And we see that most evidently in the Holy Spirit. In the Mosaic Covenant, there was a veil in the temple in the Holy of Holies. So no one except the high priest can enter into the most intimate place of God's presence. Now if you would like to read more about how the New Covenant compares with the Mosaic or Old Covenant, read the book of Hebrews. The whole premise of the book is, Jesus is better and the greatest need for man is not to initiate a covenant with God, but for God to initiate a covenant with him. And God has done this through Jesus God the Son. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and he establishes and secures his covenant with his own blood. During the Passover meal in the upper room with his disciples, before he goes to the cross, he reinterprets what the Israelites have done for hundreds of years, and in effect says, this Passover meal is really about me. I have a better covenant than Moses, the new covenant. So when we take the Lord's Supper or communion, think of it as a Passover meal 2.0. Because as members of the new covenant, a.k.a. Christians, we celebrate the covenant that God has made with us to reconcile sinners to himself because of what Jesus has done. It is only by entering this new covenant that God uh, we'll apply to our account what Jesus has done for us through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, giving you forgiveness of all sin and thought, word, deed, and motive, past, present, and future. How do you know, sorry, how do you enter into this covenant which leads to forgiveness? The Bible says that forgiveness of sin is received by repenting from sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at how the response to the gospel is explained in the book of Acts. In Acts 10.43 writes, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, in Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 13.38 let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. And finally, in Acts 2:38, Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." So when you repent and believe in Christ and enter into this new covenant, you are making a vow, a pledge, a promise to God that he is the master over your entire life. Now, how do you know you are a Christian? How do you know you're a member of the new covenant? Is it because you're now a moral, upstanding person? No. No. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is the proof. Let's read Romans 8, 5 through 11. 
considered to be one of the greatest chapters in the Bible by many scholars. Romans chapter 8. Oh, I never moved the slide. <laughs> Here we go. It's only one slide, so it's easy to uh, follow along. <clears throat> Romans 8, verses 5 through 11. Let's read. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And here's the key point. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal, mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So when you enter into this new covenant with Christ, he doesn't leave you where you are. He makes you a new creation. And he allows the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, to dwell inside of you so that you will have a zeal for holy things and the things of God, just as Jonathan Edwards had said. So are you a Christian? Have you entered into this covenant relationship with God? Do you have a zeal for holy things? In closing, I want to, in closing, I want to explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of the other four major covenants in the Bible. Jesus brings a better judgment for sin and greater salvation to his chosen people than the covenant with Noah. He is the protection and propitiation from the wrath of God. Jesus gives a greater land than the covenant of Abraham. He is the blessing to the nations of the earth. Jesus delivers his people from a greater slavery than Moses in Egypt. He is the fulfillment and the focus of the Old Testament laws, rituals, ceremonies, sacrifices, temple, and priesthood. And finally, Jesus establishes a greater kingdom than David and whose reign will never end. So may we live in a manner worthy of the gospel in which we repent of sin and celebrate Jesus as our, in our covenant relationship with him. Let's pray. Good morning, Father. I'm just blown away the fact that you would not only initiate a covenant with us, but you would do so by humbling yourself, 
to the point of becoming a man, living a perfect life in complete obedience and dying a death by the hands that you wanted to be reconciled to you. Thank you, Lord, that you keep this covenant. It is a one-sided covenant. You keep it, and you allow us to be in it, in that bond. I pray, Lord, that you would allow the gospel to motivate our obedience to you, not so we can perform, but that we would just obey you because we want to please you. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the perfect sacrifice you made and for the resurrection and your Holy Spirit within us. Pray this in your name. Amen.